Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by political consultant and communication strategist, Bill Burton. Bill was Deputy Press Secretary and Special Assistant to President Barack Obama and is now the founder and president of Bryson Gillette, a minority-owned political and strategic communications firm in Los Angeles. Bill, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Reed. Good to see you. Thanks for coming back. So you obviously worked inside the West Wing. You were close to President Obama and you lived in D.C. and long enough to understand the dynamics. So I wanted to start with something that we've been talking a little bit about for the last week or so, which is there's this fascinating sort of commentariat maelstrom around Vice President Kamala Harris. And from our perspective, it sort of encapsulates all the stuff that frustrates us a little bit about democratic messaging and sort of behavior, which is, you know, not understanding how to fight the culture war which when the right goes after the vice president, it is specifically for cultural issues that they hope to be electoral issues. Then there's a little bit of this sort of naked ambition piece, which I guess is always endemic to Washington, D.C., so I shouldn't be surprised about. But then there's the last piece, which is you have someone who is by her very election historic in nature, but they're not utilizing her, at least not in a way in the wake of a big legislative victory or in the push for more legislative victories would seem to make sense. So I just wanted to open with that and get your sense of it. Well, Vice President Harris was my senator here in California. I know her, like her. I think she's great. We're not like best friends, but I am a fan of hers and I'm rooting for her pretty hard. And it'd be nice to see some folks in DC rooting for her a little harder on our side. I think that she has not been set up to succeed in a lot of different ways. Putting her in situations where she's going to be comfortable, where she's going to be able to take the White House message and really let it shine is really important. And I feel like that hasn't really been happening. She's gotten some things on her plate that are very tough to deal with. So one thing that I hope for 2022 is that they'll let the vice president out there to do the things that she's best at, communicate in the ways that she can most effectively do the work of the White House. and be a voice for this administration and for the progressive message. But yeah, you know, the attacks that are coming in at her, you know, I watch Tucker Carlson every night, as I mentioned before. I know. And I don't know whether to bless you or curse you for it. I'm not sure. My wife is not a fan, but I will say it helps you to get an early look at where the right wing is going on their next misinformation campaign. And man, he loves to attack Kamala Harris. There's something about her, I don't know if I can put my finger on it, that he just loves going after her for. I can absolutely put my finger on it. She is a powerful woman of color who they are scared to death of. That is the bottom line. Absolutely scared to death. And he's obsessed. You know, he's obsessed with tearing her down. And I think that on the progressive side, I think there needs to be an effort to help lift her up. And they can't just be the White House. I think that allies need to be in the game talking about her strengths and having her at events where people can see that she's great. You know, I mean, I'm an old advanced man. So, I mean, I've been to more towns across the country and frankly, the world than I can remember. And usually, as you know, the president gets to go to the marquee places and the vice president gets the, the smaller markets. But I mean, I just think about just as a matter of political theater, if you went to a second or third tier market in Michigan or Pennsylvania and Air Force Two lands and the motorcade rolls up, and that motorcade goes rolling through town to whatever the factory is or whatever the reason is you're in town. People love that stuff. They love the pomp and circumstance of it because they don't get to see it up close. And so I think that there is the political spectacle of it, and I don't want to use that in the negative way, that also has very 
positive political connotations. And if you had her out there, you know, in these places where this infrastructure money is going to do some good with working men and women in this country for whom this money will do a lot of good, I think it would be a win-win for everybody. I think that's right. And she could be on the road every single week going to these markets, making the case. And there's good news to tell, you know, up until this last week. We're starting to get the news of the Omicron variant, but even still, the COVID numbers are going down. The employment numbers are going up. There's a good story to tell. And having her out there telling it, like you're saying, even in secondary markets where it'd be such a big deal to have her come to town would be really meaningful for the whole effort. Yeah, I mean, that would be five, six, seven o'clock morning news, noon news, five, six p.m. local news, you know, 10, 11, front page of the paper, every local rag in town. It would be front page everywhere. She'd probably do a sit down with the locals and the locals, as you know, you've dealt with this morning, probably not going to ask her the hardball question or the gotcha question that some D.C. bozo is going to try and pull out of her. I just think it would be a win win. And I think that anytime you have assets like that just sitting on the bench, it just never makes sense to me. But I guess I want to ask a broader strategic question, which is on the Republican side of the aisle. And this is metastasized into a vertical authoritarian movement. The Republican Party was always very hierarchical, like the White House made all the decisions and everybody else saluted and fell in line. I don't think that's ever been something that Democrats have done generally, and it doesn't seem like it's the kind of thing going on now. Is that something that they can get squared away as we get into the midterms, or is it always going to be sort of this fractured and fractious machine and those of us that can can try and help put it together and point it in the right direction? Well, there is some value to the fact that the leadership in the Democratic Party is more distributed than it is in the Republican Party. And Democrats are never going to all you know, sing from the exact same songbook. I think you saw Democrats become united around Joe Biden in this last election. I think that you saw it in Congress as they passed the infrastructure bill and some of the big ticket items that have come through over the course of last year. But going into this next year, you know, Democrats are at a major disadvantage if you look at any set of polling out there. I said before that the news is good for what's happening, but if we're not out there telling that news to the American people, then it's going to be real trouble in, in these midterms. And I will say, you know, I was in the White House in the first term, and in the midterms in 2010, we lost 63 seats in the House. It was like one of the biggest drubbings in the history of modern American politics. And I think that there was a calculation that we could pass the stimulus bill. And some of these other big items go around the country and do victory laps for all of 2010. And that was going to be the thing that helped Democrats down the ticket, whether it's the Senate, House, or anything that were happening in the states. And it was a, a fundamentally flawed premise, right? Like, I think there's a complicated calculus to what needs to happen for Americans to see that if Republicans take control of the House or the Senate or both, it's going to have a pretty devastating impact on the direction of the country. And I don't think that that necessarily means that AOC has to be saying the same thing that Joe Manchin is saying out there, right? But I do think that there's got to be some message that isn't just about the stuff that has already happened, but is about what's next. What's the vision for the country? Where are you going to take us? You know, I've long thought that voters never go into the voting booth to say thank you. <laughs> Even Winston Churchill bounced out of office after World War II. I mean, not only after World War II, like six weeks after it ended. <laughs> right. Like, right. Exactly. I mean, he didn't even survive 1945. <laughs> Right. So we've got to have a message about what's next as well as here's all the great stuff we've done for you. Let's turn to that for a second, because we as an organization see the democracy in deep peril and that 22 and 24 
are the next places where we can defend democracy, protect democracy, at least hold off the bad guys and maybe try and bring some semblance of a new normal back, you know, in 28 or 30 or whenever it might be. And we'll be making that case louder and louder as we go into 2022. But that's something that I think is really good to set a sort of national and strategic frame. But talking about voters going into the voting booth, if you or me or anybody is saying, hey, Joe voter, vote for our guy because he believes in democracy. I don't think that's going to get us over the line. It won't. That's not to say that we don't need to pass some pro-democracy legislation in the House and Senate and have the president sign into law, because we do. But there is going to have to be a message that's more about what is the difference that the leadership in the country can make in people's lives? How is that leadership different from you know what we had in the four years under Trump and Republicans in Congress? And there's going to be some revisionist history. There always is. As Tucker Carlson every night rails on Joe Biden for not doing more on COVID and says, don't get the vaccine, don't wear masks, fight any notion of anything that could actually stop the spread of COVID, and then blames President Biden for the numbers being higher than they were last year. It's insanity, but we're not going to be able to win if we're not continuously making the case. On the Tucker Carlson piece, I mean, Carlson is one part of that vast right-wing media structure that has been built over decades, is highly effective, it's highly efficient. It doesn't really care about talking to people that aren't its people, but it does, through osmosis, have an effect. And for every six-minute block on Tucker Carlson that, let's say, three million people are watching, how many times does that get spread around on Facebook or posted to Twitter or seen on YouTube? I mean, it's just these multiplier effects. And so I think that that right-wing rage machine is very dangerous. You know, I thought it ironic where we're talking about Tucker. Did you see that there was an email from 2014 where he asked Hunter Biden to get his kid into Georgetown? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So like, you know, Tucker, for all of his wacko right wing bona fides, like when the time came, you know, he, he said, hey, buddy, Hunter, can you help Buckley? And that's really the kid's name, Bill. Can you help Buckley get into Georgetown? And like, you can't make it up. And, you know, he'll say, oh, it was made up or, you know, it's the vast left wing conspiracy and the deep state making this up. I never asked Hunter Biden for anything. But of course, we all know it's true because at that point, you know, Joe Biden was vice president and he thought that, you know, maybe the vice president's son, good Catholics, could have an effect on my son getting in. And it also just goes to remind you also that Tucker's only in it for himself. That's right. And just on what you were saying on social media is a really good point because it's not just the broadcast, right? Like these clips get whipped around the Internet millions and millions of times because of the way that those social media platforms are set up, right? They're set up to incentivize people to put up the most incendiary, most enraging content because those are the things that get passed around. And you look at how our politics has changed over the course of the last 15 years. And President Obama was elected in 2008. And I think that that marked a turning point in a lot of different things, but certainly the way that people talked about race and politics and the way that the Republican Party and far right wing especially reacted to his election. But the thing that happened at the exact same time is people had iPhones in their pockets. In 2007, the iPhone is released and combined with social media, you have this new era of rage politics that has brought us to where we are today, where it's impossible to have a conversation concerning shared truths, even if you have a different point of view. You know, it was interesting. There's a guy named Scott Galloway, who's a serial entrepreneur, and I think he teaches a business class at NYU. And he was on, I think, was it CNN today? And the Chiron said, 
Galloway, I'd rather give my daughter whiskey and marijuana than access to Instagram. Like in his mind, like that's the delta between the danger of alcohol and drugs versus Instagram for his daughter. And I probably agree with him. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the studies, tobacco got in massive trouble in the 90s for what their products were doing and what they knew it was doing. And something like 10% of people get cancer from smoking. 10% of smokers get cancer. If you look at Instagram, something like 20 to 30% of teenage girls who are on Instagram want to harm themselves. It is a problem of epic proportion. It's particularly pernicious for teen girls, but also boys. And it's not great. No, it's not. And, you know, about the rage machine, this is what you talk about. I mean, we should also say that then Senator Obama, candidate Obama, you guys used Facebook in a way that had not been used before. Also, it's Barack and Michelle Obama, right? So like pretty good to begin with. But they used it in a positive way to organize millions and millions and millions of people. But it was a new thing then, right? Maybe Zuckerberg and Sandberg hadn't learned how to use the algorithms yet. Maybe it was a different algorithm. Maybe it was a different company. But it, it is interesting that not even 15 years later, we see between the time that you all used it for that way for purposes of positive reinforcement for organization, for positive political use, to now where it is a cesspool of ugliness and hate and revanchist belief. And Zuckerberg and Sandberg are sort of like, eh, nothing we can do about it. Right. I mean, the thing that they did that made it so much worse than it was in 2007, 2008, when we were using it to organize grassroots folks to support the campaign is back then they just had a like button, right? If you liked a piece of content, you just hit like. That had an effect on the algorithm. If it had more likes, more people would see it. Then they added in the like, hate, sad, like all the other different emotions that you could do behind it. And the thing that's so awful about how they changed the algorithm is that they weighted each one of those emotions. So if you liked something, it gave you a score of like one. If it made you mad, it got a score of like eight. And if you cried, the sad one was eight too. And so those were the things that they were trying to get people to engage with because they knew the more people engaged with those things, the longer they'd stay on the platform, the more ads they could sell, the more money they could make. Right. And the idea now that, I mean, maybe somebody wants to be part of this weird lawnmower man metaverse he wants to create, but I could sure tell you, is ain't going to be me and my family? Like, I want <laughs> nothing to do with that shit. Then I don't know who does. Yeah, exactly. He's got 10,000 engineers working on it. And... It's the same thing as when they developed Facebook in the first place, and they're just not thinking about like the safety and health of the people who are using it before they're thinking of how long can we keep people on these devices, regardless of the impact it's going to have on you know teen body image issues and far right wing virology. You know, I'm not anti technology, but you should start from a place of what's going to keep us safe, what's going to make it harder to incite violence, what's going to make it easier to have productive, healthy interactions with other people. Health and safety isn't the thing that's like first in the foreground of their mind. It's how do we keep people engaged so that we keep them here so we can make more money? So, I mean, let me ask you this. We were talking about the social media piece and a lot of that too is the right-wing rage machine has also made stars out of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Paul Gosar and all these other people. And so, you know, as we look into next year, you're right, nobody ever says thank you. But I think the Republicans, you know, could absolutely lose it for themselves, too, because you could take someone who's like very conservative, but he's principled and he's a decent human being. You might disagree with him on everything. These people are not principled. They're not even conservative and they're not decent. These are people who 
they would be the person at the Walmart who would like lose their minds and you'd be standing there with your mouth agape going, what the hell is wrong with that person? And so like, give me your sense of how you see the Republicans, which just as an aside, I think it was either earlier this week or late last week, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's now a regular guest on the Steve Bannon podcast, which is absolutely mind warping if you've ever spent any time. You, you think Tucker Carlson's bad. But she said, I'm not a fringe of the Republican Party. I'm mainstream. And she's right. And so do you believe that as voters go to the polls next year, if Americans are looking at the future of the country, are these the people they want running it, even if they're not huge fans of the Democrats? You know, I had this epiphany this last week that the Republican Party is not looking at the future of the country. The Republican Party is using short-term fear about things like COVID and immigration, critical race theory, in order to scare people into voting for them and against Democrats. And, you know, I think this is the fight that we're going to have. And if you look at the race in Virginia, I have a slightly unconventional view of, of what went down in that race. You know, people's Heads were on fire about the fact that McAuliffe lost and Murphy almost lost in New Jersey. And oh my God, Democrats are so screwed. You know, we talked about the polling. The polling's very bad for Democrats right now. And Terry McAuliffe almost won that race, right? Like in an environment where everything was dragging against him. And had he not made that gaffe in the late debate, good chance he would have won that race. I think that if you look at this fall, I think Republicans will have learned from what happened there that critical race theory is the way to have this fight. Donald Trump's going to be out there talking about it. You've got to price him into the system because he's going to make it crazy. And then you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, all your friends. Best friends. We have them over every weekend. Can you imagine going to dinner with those three people? Actually, I will say this as an aside. I think I've told this story before. So a friend of mine was on an airplane with Lauren Boebert going from Washington, D.C. to Denver. Boebert was there wearing a mask, didn't cause any fuss. She said, when we got off the plane, I said, Congresswoman, can we ask you a few questions? And Bobert said, no, you can't ask me any question, but would you like to have lunch? And I thought that was fascinating. What I think it is, Bill, is I think she's terribly lonely. She's willing to sit at the Denver airport with two people she knows can't stand her because she needs some kind of like real human contact. God, what a miserable existence that must be. Also, the people who she inspires to want to be around her <laughs> must not be that fun to be around. Oh, God, no. But anyway, looking ahead to the fall, I just think they're going to overplay their hands on CRT. And, you know, it's not looking great for Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court right now. Yeah. What does that do? Because what the Republicans want is a massive cultural tear in the middle of the campaign. That's what they're going for. That's what they're hoping for. That's what they're counting on. Well, I think the impact is millions of vulnerable women are going to lose a right to their own body. And the impact of that is going to be shattering. But then the politics of it, I just think that it is going to wake up a generation of Americans who've always thought that Roe v. Wade was just law of the land and not something to really worry about. I take a slightly different way. I don't think they ever maybe even knew the concept of Roe v. Wade, but they knew that they had this ability and now they don't. And they're going to be like, what the hell? Yeah. So I think that this lights the not just the progressive world on fire, but also a lot of independents who are going to be like, oh, my God, we have like this insane Supreme Court. Who's going to be out there as a voice for reason in our politics? And Republicans are not that because that decision is going to be followed. I don't pretend to know what the court's going to do. It's, it just seems like from what they were saying during the arguments that they've got the votes to overturn Roe. The impact is that immediately states across the country are going to start essentially banning abortion. And that's going to be a big part of the conversation going into next fall. And that is going to be quite inspirational for progressives to be in the game.
Well, I'll say this based on Texas, you know, SB8 down there, which is, I think, the last time I saw this, I think, has a 40% approval rating in the state, which means that a whole bunch of Republicans and conservative independents don't like it either. And let's be clear, if Greg Abbott's daughter got pregnant or was raped, let me tell you something, it would be taken care of. Let's say she knew it six weeks in a day. You don't think Greg Abbott's making sure that his daughter doesn't have to carry the baby of a rapist to term? Come on. It's horseshit, and he knows it. And maybe that's pretty brutal to think about. Maybe we shouldn't bring people's children into it. But he's bringing the children and the daughters and the mothers and the sisters of everyone in Texas into it for purely political gain. That's all this is, right? He did this because he was afraid that Dan Patrick, the crazy loon lieutenant governor, would run against him. And he's got two more loons. That was all this was about. He didn't write it. None of the goons that live in the Texas House of Representatives wrote it because they couldn't conceive of it. This was written in some think tank in Washington, D.C., and it also imparted vigilantism into the state, which I'm sure people are huge fans of. So now you're going to see it in Florida. And remember, we have all these legislative sessions that will fire up. So they'll all pass it with the assumption that it will be the law of the land, you know, or the law of their state, I should say, sometime in June or July. And, you know, people will throw up cases and all the federal courts and the appeals courts will say, we got to wait. We got to wait. So, you know. The Fifth Circuit in any southern state will say it can go forward. These bans can go forward until we hear elsewhere. And all, you know, the Ninth Circuit and all the liberal courts will say, you know what, we're going to put everything on hold and then it'll all get wrapped up into one thing and it's going to be a mess. And that's, I think, also, Bill, what the Republicans want, which is they are the agents of chaos in this country. They want the chaos. They want the upset. They want the anger. They think that there are more people that agree with them than disagree with them, or at least they think they can scare off more people that disagree with them. And I think that's the other part too, which is all of this is based on threat and fear. I mean, I said this to somebody I was on the phone with earlier today, and I'll blame y'all just for a second. The idea that Democrats have let Republicans get away with calling themselves the party of life for 50 years is ridiculous because everything you see is to the opposite. 700,000 dead Americans, railing against vaccine mandates, railing against the vaccine itself, school shooting in Michigan, four more dead kids. They're not the party of life. They are the party of chaos and sickness and death. We have to call these people out for what they are. They are bad people who want to do bad things to lots of other Americans, and it cannot stand. I'm with you. And the fact that even in the face of Sandy Hook, Republican leadership said, well, that's the price of freedom. Like, why would we change anything? And the Senate president in Michigan said the same thing. Well, if we start taking it up now, it's going to be this slippery slope to socialism or confiscation or whatever. I mean, you know, Tucker Carlson, you know, you brought up Sandy Hook, was on the air the other night extolling the virtues of Alex Jones as a journalist, right? A man who claimed that, you know, Sandy Hook was an inside job and the parents sued him and won, I don't know, whatever it was. It doesn't really matter because it doesn't bring their kids back. But that's where we are now, which is, Tucker Carlson is playing footsie with Alex Jones, who is literally a tinfoil hat insane person. That's right. But yeah, I mean, getting back to the fall, this is the context for the conversation that we're going to have going into the fall of 2022. And I, I refuse to believe that things are as dire as people say that they are for Democrats, because I do think that there's time to write the ship. That said, it's going to take some real intention and some real doing in, in order to do it. As we're looking at it, Bill, I'm glad you brought that up because Let's try and find a little happiness and light here before we send people out into their weekend. You know, again, the Republicans will sabotage themselves. That's an opening, but it's not victory. I mean, our perspective is in 2020, a massive 
ad hoc coalition came together to elect Joe Biden, but it didn't have an effect on down ballot races, really. We believe that it's going to take the broadest and deepest and most diverse coalition in American political history to save the republic this time around. And it's going to be every group in every state, whether or not they got, you know, four people in someone's garage or 100,000 people on an email list. It's going to take every last one of us to build that mosaic that's going to basically create the shield that we need, you know, going into November. And then 2022 is just the way station, right? I mean, you think about Republicans take the House. First of all, Kevin McCarthy, who lives just down the road from you, never going to be speaker, I don't think. God knows it'll be Jim Jordan or some other insane person. And so we're right into 24. So as you know, coalition warfare, not the easiest thing to do. But, you know, I think that there's never been a time when more people who believe fundamentally in the Republican form of government, in the Democratic form of government that we now have clearly taken for granted. I think there are people from AOC to Liz Cheney who believe that. And now it's, I think, the time for all of us to come together. Like in your experience, how can we help do that? How do we get folks who otherwise don't agree on stuff to lock arms, even if it's just for the next 10 months, 11 months? I don't know that there's a magic formula. If there is, we certainly haven't found it, but it would be nice to have some things to rally around, right? Like some issues. And I think that they will present themselves as they come. But we're entering into another complicated campaign season because who knows what is going to happen with this new variant and the impact that it's going to have on politics this time around. Doesn't seem good. But like you said, it's a way station in 2024. And whether it's Trump or DeSantis at the top of the ticket on the Republican side, the outcome of that presidential race is actually, again, the most important presidential race of our lifetime. It was this last race. It was also 2016. They just keep getting more important because our democracy is teetering more and more as Republicans really become unmoored from basic democratic principles in how they communicate and how they act. You know, these midterms are going to require like a real fundamental grassroots effort, group by group, neighborhood by neighborhood, to make sure that people, you know, see the consequences of what is actually going to happen if they impeach Joe Biden. Right. Like what if they have the power to stop any more of Biden's appointees from becoming judges or to grind to a halt any agencies where he doesn't have Senate approved staff? What's going to happen when they get their hands on the, the federal budget again? Right. It's going to be bad across the board for Americans. And I think that one thing that concerns us is that there's a lot of us out here, you know, beating the drum going, hey, hey, wake up. This is really happening. But it's really hard whether or not it's folks inside the Beltway or folks who are just trying to go to work every day to get across. Like, we can only bang that drum so hard. Eventually, we're going to have to get right up in people's faces and their hearts and their heads and say, this is what you're giving up. Are you ready to give this up? I don't think you are. Yeah. But we got to find a new way to message it, I think. I think the old ways of pollsters and consultants who are drawing up democratic messaging, it needs to get shaken up a little bit. We've got to find new ways to communicate because the challenges that we're facing are new. And if we don't make a new path for ourselves, I think it's going to be bad. Well, that's why guys like you and me came up different paths, but found ourselves together. And thank God for that. Bill, before we let you go, where can everybody find you online and where can we find your business? Check out our website, brysongillette.com. Gillette's got two L's, two T's. We're running a great, diverse political and communication shop and we operate all over the country. So thanks for the plug. And where can we find you on Twitter? I'm just at Bill Burton on Twitter. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Bill Burton, I want to thank you for joining me today. And gang, we'll see you soon.
Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.